3: Thank you very much, John. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. I'm left with that last thought there that people are no longer just staying home and vacuuming. They're actually getting out this summer. Welcome to Power Lunch, I'm Tyler Matheson. Big Jobs Friday, and we got a big jobs number. 528,000 jobs added to the economy in July. That was more than double what had been estimated. The unemployment rate falling now to 3.5 percent, lower even than pre-pandemic. Average hourly earnings jumping 5.2 percent from last year. At least for today, recession fears, it seems, taking a backseat to inflation worries yet again and more rate hikes possibly coming from the Fed. That's why we're seeing stocks uh, mixed after this blockbuster jobs number that, for the economy at least, Bob Pisani, is good news.
2: Yeah, it's good news for the economy. And it's hard for people to understand that the stock market is a discounting mechanism. So it looks six months ahead. The reason we're down today is there's concerns that while we're not in any recession now, it doesn't appear to be so maybe down the road, the Fed will be forced to be even more aggressive than a lot of investors want. And they may induce a recession. This is the way the stock market thinks. It's a forward looking mechanism. So if you look at it, The selling pressure is really very modest today. The volume is not very heavy. People are not looking to get out. In fact, the worst print was right at the open. We were about to break uh, 4,100 on the S&P 500. That didn't happen. We've rallied and essentially held on fairly well here. Dow's a little bit weak here, but uh, some of the selling uh, has been in the NASDAQ. But even here, I would say very modest declines overall. One of the reasons the S&P has held up is because value is doing very well. Oil stocks have generally held up. Now, oil's been all over the place today, 87 to 91. Right now, it's slightly on the upside, but you see some of the big material names like Freeport-McMoran rallying back, uh, and some of the uh, well-known oil companies like APA, Devon, Occidental, and Chevron all doing well. That's one reason uh, the overall market's holding up. Another reason has been 10-year yields are popping. We were up 18 basis points uh, in the 10-year. And when you get something like that, usually you're going to see bank stocks rallying. That's the second leg uh, that's holding the market up. J.P. Morgan and some of the big, super regional banks like Fifth Third, Zions, and Wells Fargo all moving to the upside. As for the key rally in the last, uh, oh, since mid-June, tech stocks, mega cap tech, well, they're down. But they're not down much, and there is no aggressive selling here. I look at the volumes in these every day, Apple, Micron, NVIDIA, LAM Research, you know, NVIDIA is up 20% in a month. Uh, And yet when I look at the volume today, yes, we're down, but there's nobody looking to get out in any big droves. Very, very modest selling pressure. Finally, consumer discretionary has got a little bit of pressure on it. Tesla's out. Of course, we had Elon uh, talking about some things yesterday, uh, delaying that Cybertruck that everybody's so interested in. So a little bit of individual stock story there. Overall, though, I'd have to say uh, inflation was much stronger, wage inflation, much stronger than the bulls anticipated. That is not good news for the bull case, uh, and yet still hopes out there that we can avoid some kind of serious recession down the road. The Goldilocks scenario is still alive, but it's under a lot of pressure today. Guys, back to you. Among
3: the interesting things you said there, Bob, one that caught my ear was this, that the, the here you get a good jobs number, interest rates go up. The fear then is that with a good jobs number and high inflation, high wage growth, Fed will continue to raise interest rates and therefore and thereby induce a recession. And that's why
2: stocks are as mixed as they are. Did I hear you right? Right. Right. Yes. And this is the problem with explaining this to people who don't know how the stock market works. Your head kind of explodes. Wait a minute. This is good news, right, Bob? Because we're not in recession. The economy is good. Uh, the right. consumer is good. But why is the stock market down? Well, it is good news. But the stock market looks down the road and it's concerned about the fact that the Federal Reserve officials who've been out screaming this week, we're going to keep raising rates, are right. They are going to keep raising rates. And they're going to keep raising rates so aggressively, down the road they're going to create a recession. And that makes everybody a little bit crazy. We'll call it an inflation.
3: Thank you very much, Bob. Appreciate it, Bob Pisani. (laughs) We're also seeing a big reaction in the bond market. Yields jumping today after falling uh, to four-month lows earlier this week. Rick Santelli in Chicago for us. Uh, Rick, did the bond market guess wrong on this jobs report? And once again, as we end up the week, I always love to ask you, what did we learn this
4: week? You know, I don't think the bond market really responded in any type of fashion that could be considered wrong. Let's look at a week-to-date of two-year. Okay, at 323, where we're trading right now, we're up 34 basis points on the week. And if you look at tens, Bob's right. We're up 17 uh, basis points on the week at 282. But think about that. Tens are up half as much as twos. So on weak numbers, we flatten or invert more. On strong numbers, we... Invert more. What is that telling us? What it's telling me is the market's still right. It's putting pressure on the short maturities because of the implications for the Fed. And the long end still sees the same thing. As a matter of fact, on that week to date chart, 285 was the high Wednesday. We only took it out by a smidge. That's very important. Look at a week to date of the dollar index because the Fed's getting more aggressive. Potentially, the dollar index popped nicely. And there's the center of attraction, to January Fed Fund futures of 23. They're currently down 18 basis points on the day. When they go down, they put more Fed in. And that really is at the crux of the matter. And it's all the same everywhere. Boon yields moved 11 basis points higher, guilt yields moved. 13 basis points higher. Italian yields moved a dozen basis points higher. And if Europe is watching us that closely, we better watch them. As we heard Bailey say when he raised rates on Thursday, UK, in his opinions already in a recession. Back to you, Tyler.
3: All right, Rick, on that note, have a great weekend, sir. Uh, The latest read on jobs in America adding to the volatility on Wall Street. Investors now, of course, trying to figure out what a stronger than expected labor market means for the Fed's rate tightening. Well, we just sort of teed up that conversation. And now the question, how should you invest in these uh, tricky times? Let's bring in Megan Hsu. She's head of investment strategy at Wilmington Trust. Welcome back, Megan. Good to see you.
0: Thanks, Tyler. Nice to see you, too. I
3: see in some of my notes your commentary. uh, I I want to get you to explain it a little bit. You are a little bit above um, your normal cash position, but you have switched from a little bit from value to growth, and you have added to technology. On the face of it, those things seem a little counterintuitive or positive to one another
0: yeah so at the asset class level we have definitely taken down risk pretty steadily throughout the year our our last and most recent step taking down some emerging market exposure so that across the board we're neutral to equities and i think that that just really speaks to the uncertainty that we see going forward Um, you know the key inflationary problem that we've had all along has been pressure from both the supply side and the demand side And the good news is that when we look at oil prices, commodity prices, supply chains, goods uh, purchases coming down, signs that the the supply side is improving. But today's labor market report, the strong wage data, it really still gives concern that the demand side will remain too strong, that the Fed will have to keep its foot on the brake, continue uh, hiking and really kind of undo a lot of the optimism that the markets baked in over the last couple of weeks that the Fed rate hike cycle will be ending earlier um, than maybe we thought before. So while we're neutral to equities, um, you know, at the level of where we were, we've certainly moved a lot uh, just today in terms of the 10-year Treasury yield, we still see some upside Mm -hmm. rate risk, and that's why we're we're modestly underweight to investment-grade fixed income and holding our defensive allocation in cash. But the rotation into growth is really... Um, a function of three pillars that we look across when we're making factor decisions valuation momentum and the economic environment and when it comes to the growth versus value trade off valuation is much more attractive um, by our signals for growth stocks momentum has certainly improved over the last week uh, month or so Um, and then when it comes to the economy I would say best case scenario, we're, we're moving towards a below trend growth mm-hmm. um, or even potentially recessionary scenario. And in that case, looking for companies that are providing their own growth is going to be better than those typicals.
3: Educate me a little bit, because because folks who are in your business often will use the phrases you just did. We are neutral on equities. What does that mean in 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 practice, in a practical sense?
0: Yeah well the most important thing for an investor and a diversified investor long term in nature is really coming up with that strategic asset allocation which is based off of your risk tolerance so whenever we talk about neutral we're talking about that that long versus that long term strategic asset allocation and an overweight or an underweight or a neutral stance really just speaks to our view of that asset class over a shorter time uh, horizon we use nine to twelve months so um, you know, right now we're we're kind of hugging hugging our strategic benchmark, seeing a lot of uncertainty, not wanting to wade in and chase this rally, but also being respectful of the market and the really strong bounce from a technical perspective, you know, up eleven percent uh, in just a matter of weeks. and that's, uh, you know, you don't want to totally ignore what the market's telling you. yeah.
3: so and I, in other words, if my comfort point, my normal baseline portfolio, is 60% equities and 40% uh, fixed income, let's say a lot of I-bonds in there right now. Neutral to equities would mean you'd be right on your normal 60%, right?
0: That's right, yeah. And that strategic asset allocation is still the most important thing for long-term investors to get mm-hmm. right. And It really speaks to their risk tolerance, how much tolerance they have for drawdown um, at any given point in time. And then we try to Add some alpha, you know, where we can by looking shorter term and trying to anticipate where the market's going.
3: Megan, always good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Megan Shu, Wilmington Trust. All right, for more on this jobs report in the economy, let's bring in Mark Morial, former mayor of New Orleans and the president and CEO of the National Urban League. Mark, welcome. Very good to see you. I'm going to I'm going to walk out here and I know you can dive down into these numbers with me. We've talked about the headline number. It's very uh, much bigger than people expected. But there are a couple of things I know of particular um, sensitivity to you. And one would be declining labor force participation among black
5: workers. Why is that? Uh, First of all, Ty, I love the Cleveland Browns uh, tie there. I don't know <laughs> if you've changed your loyalties, uh, but it is sharp. Thank uh, you. Sir. Here's the point. Uh, black workers, like any other worker, can become discouraged. They're in the workforce. They're seeking jobs. Uh, and then they drop out, and they may go a month or two without putting in a new application for work. Remember, the unemployment numbers measure only those who have sought employment in the last month versus those who've been hired in the last month. Important to understand the statistics here. And it's also crucial to look at this U6 number, which uh, identifies those who are working part time who'd like to work full time. But notwithstanding uh, this sort of bouncing around in the labor force participation rate, uh, and I might also add that sometimes this report doesn't capture the number of people who've decided to join the gig economy. Uh, the Uber, the DoorDash, uh, uh, those sorts of things, the Lyft. Uh, but there are other gig opportunities that may not fully be captured uh, when you look at this jobs report. Mm-hmm. Uh, the un- the inequality remains, the two-to-one ratio between black and white unemployment. But Ty, this is an outstanding report because it not only beat analyst expectations, because here's the punctuation point, right? and that is that employment has just about come back to pre-pandemic levels. And what does that mean from a historical perspective? It means that this has been one of the fastest post-recession recoveries in modern American history. I mean, we had double-digit unemployment uh, two years ago. Uh, We were bleeding jobs, and now it appears as though the economy has almost fully come uh, back to equilibrium. I
3: believe you're exactly right. I think the 22 million jobs lost have all been regained. There is a soft spot... um, I want to come back to to the question of of workers being discouraged. Why Mm -hmm. would workers be discouraged or potential workers be discouraged in the face of such a robust job market and rising incomes? Um, I would think they would be discouraged in a shrinking labor market where incomes were falling and layoffs were high, and that's not happening.
5: Well, I think it's also important to note that the decline in the labor force participation rate while there is not necessarily significant. and we may it's see small. this number bounce, we may see this number bounce around uh, over the next several months as uh, optimism is restored to the economy and the prospect for job creation becomes stronger. But sometimes you have skills mismatches. Sometimes you have geographic mismatches. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in some markets the jobs may be only jobs that require higher skills. In some places, it may be an abundance of lower wage, lower skilled jobs. So it's tough to look at national figures and Mm. really drill down, for example, as to what's happening in either a Toledo or a Tallahassee or in a Baltimore or in a Boston. Uh, We uh, can't fully tell. So I think the important thing about the labor force participation rate for people to understand is that one of the things that this also uh, takes into effect is those that have become a little bit older, have now mm-hmm. retired or who no longer have an interest in full-time employment. Younger workers or young mothers who may be uh, grappling with the challenges of child care. So we've got to look at this number, but the discouraged worker is always uh, a, a factor. And I think it would be great uh, for CNBC yeah. to get out on the road sometime. Maybe we need to go talk to some of these workers and find out, well, you took 60 days, you look for a job, then that third month you said, you know what, I'm not going to look this month because I couldn't find anything uh, I liked or I wanted So Sometimes that yes. behavior is very rational. Yeah. You know, I want to
3: uh, – enough of this jobs talk. I, I, yeah. You and I are roughly the same uh, – of the same generation. And, and I, I would love to hear your reflections on the basketball player I grew up with and idolized oh, yes. Bill Russell oh, man. Uh, who passed away last weekend. Uh, He he was one of the great pioneers, one of the greatest players of all time. He played in a tough city for a a black man to play in uh, in the 50s and 60s.
5: Here's the thing about Bill Russell that I I want people to really focus on. As the greatest basketball player of that generation, he was not the highest scorer. No. Uh, Bill Russell was not the highest scorer. He was a great rebounder, a great defender, and a great team player. And this is a lesson to anyone who studies leadership uh bill russell who ultimately became a player coach uh, of the boston celtics also had an incredible partner in red arback a team around him and he was a principled man uh refusing to play in lexington kentucky in 1961 uh, when the black players were refused service uh at uh, the hotel in lexington standing with uh, muhammad ali in 1967 At a time when that was a controversial move for the greatest basketball player, a Boston Celtic champion, uh, if you will, an all-star, great risk he was willing to take. But he also, you have to remember, Bill Russell was also measured uh, in his commentary, not prone to hot or high rhetoric, but very principled in what he stood for. And, you know, I am I am just, uh, you know, for our generation, Ty, he, he was the greatest and no team before or since has matched the success of the Bill Russell and Boston none, Celtics, and I'll, 11 I'll, championships in 13 years.
3: I'll stake my uh, two cents on it. None ever will. No one will ever win 11
5: championships in any of the four major uh, North American sports. No, a great, a great, great player, great, a great black man, a great American, and a great
3: leader. Great leader and great teammate. First black head yeah. coach in the NBA, Mark Morial. Always good to see Thanks, you, sir. Thanks, Thank you, man. All right, good. All right, CNBC diving even deeper into that jobs report and what it means for the economy. We had a special report tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern, Inside Jobs. Get it? Inside Jobs, hosted by Eamon Javers. Be sure to watch and then stick around for the news with Shepard Smith, which will have a very special guest host tonight. Coming up, we have uh, crisscrossed the country on our second annual Power Lunch Road trip to get a read on real estate across the United States. There we are. Here, look at the bus. We, we went to Raleigh, okay. And uh, New York, Cleveland, Boise, today. Los Angeles, folks. What does the housing market look like in LA? We'll talk to a local realtor there. Plus, Tesla, shares falling 5%. Even after a mostly positive shareholder meeting, Elon Musk even reassured investors the company would be fine without him someday.
2: We do have a very talented team here, so I think uh I think Tesla, you know, would continue to do very
6: well even if uh, I was kidnapped by aliens, <laughs> or, or went, went back to my home planet, maybe.
7: People today can spend half their lives over fifty, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny! All right, let's take a quick
3: look at the uh, markets right now. The Dow Industrial is fundamentally flat, uh, up 10 points. The S&P sort of ditto, a third of a percent. And NASDAQ uh, down 94 points now at 12.625. That's three-quarters of a percent lower. So a rare flattish day for stocks as we round out the first week of
7: August.
3: All right, what a trip it's, what a long, strange trip it's been. Welcome back to Power Lunch. We are arriving in the final stop in our powerhouse road trip. We're visiting uh, six, six cities this summer for a look at how the housing market is changing. We have arrived in beautiful Los Angeles. According to Zillow, the median home price there is a little over 900000 top five in the country. Uh, but the market still seems pretty hot. Inventory down 12% year over year, 74% of homes sold Uh, are going above listing price, up 14% year over year for more. Let's bring in Stephanie Vitaco. She's a real estate broker with Equity Union Real Estate. We're a little tight on time, Stephanie. Uh, You say, or my notes say you say, that you think the market out there sort of peaked in March-ish. Does that mean that sellers are still trying to get those March numbers, or are they being a little more flexible?
1: So I think they're starting to be a little more flexible. I'm in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And in 2021, the prices were just insane. I think we experienced over 20% appreciation. We've definitely seen since March, uh, deceleration and stabilization. So if someone is looking or hoping to get what that one neighbor got at the very peak, which now appears to be March, That's not going to happen any longer. But if they're realistic for the price of their location, the condition, the square footage, they will still sell. There are still plenty of buyers out there. You know,
3: I I have always felt that it is the buyers who set the price in the market, not the sellers, because this because the sellers can say whatever the hell they want the house to be. But if you don't have a buyer willing to pay it, you're not going to get it right wrong.
1: No, that's absolutely true. And what was happening? I mean, we got really spoiled there. The, the past two years have been an artificial market. As long as I've been doing this, I've never seen anything like it. We were used to getting 10, 20, 30 offers on a property. Now we're back to the condition matters a whole lot more. The, um, the floor plan matters a whole lot more. Buyers are being picky and they can be picky. So they want to just make sure that they're getting a fair value. Um, They got used to just getting in a crazy bidding war. Now, if we get an offer, we treat it like gold. And if we get multiple offers, which now means maybe two offers, not 15 offers.
3: Very interesting. So the number of offers have come down. Uh, Sellers are having to be a little more um, realistic on pricing. Uh, And I guess uh, implicit in that is that houses may be staying on the market a little longer. Stephanie, we've got to leave it there. Alas, I could talk all day on real estate. We appreciate your time. We'll see you soon, I hope.
1: Thank you.
3: Stephanie Vitacco. Appreciate it. All right, let's go to Bertha Coombs. She's got a news update. Bertha.
8: Hey, good afternoon, Tyler. Here's the update for this hour. At a bill signing today, President Biden took the opportunity to tout July's strong employment report. He also spoke about the importance of passing the budget reconciliation package that's set for a vote tomorrow in the Senate.
2: I know people will hear today's extraordinary jobs report and say they don't see it, they don't feel it in their own lives. In short, this bill is a game changer for working families in our economy i look forward to the senate taking up this legislation and passing it as soon as possible
8: the department of defense denying dc mayor muriel bowser's request for the national guard to assist with the influx of migrants bused to that city from texas According to a letter reviewed by NBC, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been highly critical of the Biden administration's border policies and began busing migrants to D.C. in April. And in Iceland, a spectacular volcano eruption just 15 miles from the country's capital city is drawing a lot of spectators. Look at that. They're coming to the site despite a call from officials to avoid the area due to the possibility of poisonous gases. But I got to say, Tyler, that just makes me think, man, I really got to book a trip to Iceland one of these days. I was
3: just going to say, I think I have uh, two friends who are there now. They were coming back from uh, Ireland. They're going to stop in Iceland. What a time to be there. I want to go there. Everybody says it's just a spectacular yeah. place to visit. Bertha, have a great weekend. You too. All though. right, see you. Ahead on Power Lunch, Tesla holding its annual shareholder meeting, paving the way for a big stock split. We'll discuss the biggest takeaways from that. Plus, speaking of shareholders, nearly 400 companies have been targeted by shareholder activists so far this year. So what are we seeing this ramp up? We'll discuss all of that and more when Power Lunch comes right back to you. We've got about 90 minutes left in this first trading week of August. I want to get you caught up on the markets, stocks, bonds, and commodities, and Tesla falls after its shareholder meeting. We'll tell you what the uh, always colorful Elon Musk had to say. But first, let's check on the markets. The jobs report whipsawing stocks today. The Dow was down 237 points at the low. The S&P and NASDAQ staying firmly in negative territory. You see uh, basically minor changes there. The industrials roughly flat Uh, the others down a little bit more in percentage terms. Shares of Lyft popping on a big earnings beat with ridership at its highest levels since before the pandemic. So there's a cherry on top. The 10-year yield jumping as high as 2.87% today. The low on Tuesday was 2.52. But remember, two months ago, it hit a high of 3.48. Big swings in the bond market reacting to the jobs report and the possibility that the Fed will continue to keep its foot on the monetary brakes, so to speak. Speaking of wild moves, oil closing for the day, bouncing back a little after a down week. Let's talk to Pippa Stevens at the commodity desk. Hey, Pippa.
9: Hey Tyler, just barely in the green today but not enough to push WTI back above 90 and not enough to erase those heavy losses from earlier in the week. A potential slowdown in demand remains front and center. WTI is up half of 1% at $89. It's down nearly 10% on the week. Brent crude falling almost 14% for the week right now at $94.83. Now, next week, we'll get monthly reports from the International Energy Agency, the EIA, and OPEC. Now, the market will be closely watching these since there's a growing divergence between demand forecasts for the back half of the year. So this will provide a look at how energy agencies are are modeling the forward looking supply demand balance now turning to energy stocks which are catching a bid today it's the best sector led higher by eog resources the company's revenue almost doubled quarter over quarter to 7.4 billion dollars and one final stock to mention is sunrun up 7% right now after Barclays initiated coverage with an overweight rating. Tyler.
3: All right, thank you very much. Pippa Stevens, Elon Musk making headlines, as he always does, and as always with his remarks at the company shareholder meeting last night. Tim Higgins is a technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal as well as a CNBC contributor. Tim, uh, he never disappoints. Uh, he even joked On Twitter, apparently, that he had more children born in the second quarter than Lucid had cars made. One might question Mr. Uh, Musk's lucidity there, but but whatever, the company seems to be doing well. The stock is coming back. What are the challenges ahead for Tesla?
6: Well, the challenges are, I think the challenges for the auto industry in general, and that's where the economy is going. And listening to Elon yesterday, he seems pretty bullish. Yes, he sees a a mild recession, perhaps lasting 18 months, but he thinks that the the market has reached peak inflation. And if he can understand where his costs are going to be, and he understands where his sales are going to be, he thinks he's got six months to a year worth of uh, orders already in the books. He can kind of look out to the future and see where the company is going to be, which kind of explains why he's talking about that continued growth, that march to 20 million vehicles sold on an annual basis by 2030, and kind of hinting that by year's end, he's going to announce where that next gigafactory is going to be located, maybe Canada, maybe eastern uh, U.S.
3: He's got, to, he's got to expand his production capacity to get anywhere close to 20 million vehicles. Um, he's missed targets before, but, but forgive him, he's done plenty well.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the factory in California, outside of San Francisco, is really uh, you know brim full of uh, production at this point. It's really hard to imagine getting more there. They've got the factories in Germany and Texas that they really need to start ramping up. That has been burning cash, as he has said uh, earlier this year. And you know, really one of those things we saw Tesla kind of early on, one of the first companies to say they were concerned about with the macroeconomics, cutting uh, the workforce. Uh, and kind of doubling down on trying to ensure they were going to have supply of those important battery cells that those electric cars need. Right.
3: Let's talk about the stock split. Uh, We understand uh, from basic math that it means nothing in the short run in terms of the company's valuation. The, The company is worth what the company is worth, no matter how many stock shares are out there. But in the longer run, what does it mean to that company and to investors generally, the split?
6: Well, it should help uh, retail investors. Or at least the argument is that it would help retail investors get into that stock. Of course, Tesla has benefited from that fever, that kind of excitement among small, uh, small-time investors over the last few years, buying into the vision that Elon Musk is selling about the future of the car and the future of uh, solar panels and all these things. And, you know, and also with the stock split, you tend to see a run up in the stock. So. You know, investors are expecting, uh, you know, some some movement there. And also there's, you know, market rumors about the idea that maybe their junk bond status is going to be shed and they're going to get investment grade. And that would help them uh, in the investment community as well. So it's one of those uh, kind of another point, a pivot point for the stock and for the company is they get kind of moved from being that teenager out there trying to prove themselves mm-hmm. into becoming more of an adult company. Tim,
3: always great to see you. Always clearly put. We appreciate it. Tim Higgins. Thank you. Up next, many claim Russia is the leader. in When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the U.S. and the world vowed to hit back at Russia through financial means to cripple its economy. Now Russia would like you to believe its economy is doing just fine, but a new study from Yale contradicts those claims. Our next guest, along with a team of his fellow Yale experts, debunked some of the myths about the effects of sanctions uh, on that Russian economy. Let's bring in Yale School of Management's Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Uh, Jeff, good to see you. You have nine myths good here. To this uh, study boils, up to, to, boils down to this. Russia is in trouble, on the verge potentially of imploding. Let's take you have nine myths. I want to bear down on three of them. Let's start with this one. Russia is making up for lost Western business and imports by replacing them with imports with from Asia. Why is that a myth and untrue?
10: Yeah Putin's trying to pretend that they can, you know, pivot east for for energy sales, which, of course is not true. And he's trying to pretend that, all the companies that left, this historic 1,200 companies, multinational companies that left, aren't hurting them because they can substitute the imports from China. Will not only have their imports uh, into Russia, as we've seen, plummeted by more than 50 percent, but in fact, taking a look at China's own data, they have their customs data as public, and it's pretty reliable. It's the, what they're sending into Russia f- from China has also plummeted uh, more than 50 percent. You know, they like to create this myth of um, bellicose uh, self-reliance, long, long Russian tradition of saying they invented electricity and, you know, uh, and airplanes and automobiles and sliced bread. But the fact is they're not self-reliant is they they are you know pulling about 25 percent of their GDP is. Is from uh, imports.
3: And and when you look at their two major exports, which is oil and gas, it's not as easy as just flipping a switch and saying, okay, we will send that unbought or unpurchased gas and oil from Europe and switch it to India and China. And oh, by the way, sell it at a 35 percent discount. There isn't the infrastructure to get that product to those places. Myth number two, Russian domestic consumption and consumer health remain strong. Why a myth?
10: That's also a myth, uh, is that we're seeing that just what are people buying? There are malls everywhere. We have photographs. We have actually people on the ground in Russia and and elsewhere, in Moscow and elsewhere, uh, that the stores are shuttered, malls are closed. Uh, Of course, largely the the Western businesses that left, which is uh, 12 percent, if you believe Russia's numbers, merely 12 percent of the workforce, which is five million people right there. But we know that even taking their numbers, the indirect employment there is about three times that. So we're looking at about 40 percent of the people out of work. The uh, mayor of Moscow, I don't know how he's doing these days, but back in April, he admitted he even by then he had hundreds of thousands of people unemployed out on the streets. So there's there's massive unemployment. You look at sales of critical areas such as, um, oh, uh, you know, uh, parts that they need for Apple supplies or industrial equipment. They They can't get this.
3: Yeah. Let's look at let's look at the final myth and then we'll talk. We'll wrap it up. Putin says he's running a budget surplus thanks to high energy prices. True or false?
10: Uh, no, he's 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 running a, a deficit and nobody's going to fund that deficit because it's un, uh, uninvestable to put money into into Russia. In fact, of those companies who pulled out, we found the more dramatically they pulled out, the better Wall Street uh, actually celebrated them. So doing well and doing good, were were, we're
3: consistent with each other. Does does Russia need to sell its gas to Germany even more than Germany needs to buy it?
10: Good for you. That's something that a lot of journalists missed for a while because Putin was trying to create the opposite smokescreen. The idea that he is this great uh, global energy czar is running out of gas. That myth is crazy, is Russia needs to sell about 85, 86 percent of their gas into Europe. Uh, But in fact, Europe only needed at most 43% of their gas. And now the U.S. supplies more gas uh, to to Europe than than Russia did at its peak and and Norway substituting and uh, as, as they now develop uh, the uh, process to transfer uh, liquid gas back into uh, gasified uh, energy is uh, they're going to be able to take a lot from Algeria and other places in the world. So this won't be a problem. This is going to be done by the end of this calendar year. So, yeah, Russia, Russia is very dependent. They're like a vassal uh, state in a uh, in a feudal system and a in a mercantile system. Uh, finally, and is-
3: finally and quickly, they Putin loves to brag about the strength of the ruble. True or just a bunch of fertilizer?
10: <laughs> you know that's fertilizers one of their key products is uh, no it's it's ridiculous it's it's not an open traded currency it, you can't sell uh, your Ruples, uh, your for dollars or anything so yep. it's it's a set price it's closed and and in fact uh, it there 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 there's no there is actually no volume of trading
3: in Ruples. all right Jeff we got to leave it there thanks very much for being with us today always good to see you sir thank you thank you. Still to come, three-stock lunch running through the biggest movers of the day. We will be right back. Time for today's three-stock launch. We're going to take a look at three of the day's biggest movers and tell you how to trade them right now. DraftKings up almost 13% today as the company reports a narrower than expected loss and boosts its full-year revenue outlook as we head into, yes, football season. Warner Brothers Discovery down 17% after reporting a big loss. Uh, Also announced plans to merge its streaming service with HBO Max. That's Discovery Plus and HBO Plus, basically. And Beyond Meat, up nearly 23%, despite slashing its revenue outlook and announcing layoffs. we got three glasses. Let's bring in Lee Munson. He's CIO at Portfolio Wealth Advisors. Let's kick things off with DraftKings. Talk us through it. There was a time when I thought it was uh, DraftKings and FanDuel's, and that
11: was about it in this space. It's not that way anymore. At all. There's a lot of... There's a lot of competition and I don't think that's what the core issue is. Now, we understand that DraftKings, there's good news. Um, You know, hey, if I was trading this stock, I'd probably take some money off the table right now. And all of this is on the hope that we're gonna have a better football season and all this, this kind of nonsense. Tyler, the core issue isn't just competition isn't just the cost of getting people to come onto the platform, but you're dealing with a casino wagering structure that doesn't have food and entertainment to sell to make some actual profits. I don't see profits. I don't believe that the total addressable market by 2030 is really gonna quadruple from where it is now. And just listen to the CEO from DraftKings, about a month ago, I was just listening to a radio interview where he was lamenting how New York State, where they wanna grow and make a lot of money, that the state regulators are just preventing them from making profits. So remember, it's the one part of the casino that's highly regulated. States want to take all the profits and I think I'm just going to pass on this. I'd rather roll the dice on a craps table.
3: All right, let's move on to uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which of course had a rough, rough week. They did a lot of taking some merger related costs, uh, some some staffing cuts, uh, administrative uh, shuffles. What do you think?
11: You know, I love this stock back when it was Viacom after the Hong Kong whale. Remember how it like got crushed because that guy was over leveraged and committing fraud. You know, I was buying it maybe in the high 30s back when it was Viacom. I cut my losses. Not Viacom, Warner Brothers Brothers was not Viacom. No, and, and so when you're looking at streaming, okay, what we have to remember is you're dealing with a battle between owning HBO Max and Discovery a la carte and having it be separate from everything else. I don't think I wanna own HBO Max, you know, just alone. I wanna have Discovery. They're gonna, talking about making a profit next year. They're talking about, or in 2024, they're talking about maybe making a billion dollars. I don't know if that's gonna happen, but I can tell you, if a company just wants to work on making money, And they just want to work on raising the price. I think that's a better deal than Viacom. I think it's a better deal than Netflix. And I think it's a better deal than the other streamings out there. And so that's why I might want to take a chance on it. But you have to remember, we're going to have four more messy quarters. And so this is the one for value players that want to make some cash. I think this is the play.
3: All right, let's move on to Beyond Meat. That's the final one for the day.
11: Beyond Meat, okay, I have to tell you, I'm a vegan. I'm one of those weirdos that just eats plants. But what Beyond Meat's issue is, even though I own this stock for full disclosure, and I was buying it recently here in the 30s, Beyond Meat is overextending what they want to do with this this thing about beef jerky. I don't think people who want to slip into a slim gym are necessarily the first audience I would like to meet, okay? So the bottom line is, they showed last year that they can make a 30% gross margin. Now it's negative. Why? Because they're spending too much on hiring people like the Kardashians that try to be spokespeople and all this stuff. So if Ethan, the CEO, can get back to basics, just like with Warner Brothers, try to make a profit, raise, raise the money, see who your core fans are, I think Beyond Meat can be a profitable company. But right now, it just doesn't have what it takes. I still think that if you believe in the addressable market, which I do, this still has a chance to make some money. I think you nibble at it, buy a little, see where it goes. All
3: right, Lee. Thank you very much. We drained those glasses beautifully. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it, Lee. Thank Monson. you. After the break, uh, the boardroom boxing ring. Companies dealing with a surge of activist investors. That story is next. Shares of Pinterest and PayPal both up double digits this week following their earnings reports. But both stocks are still down more than 65 percent from their recent highs. They have one more thing in common. Activist investor Elliott Management taking stakes in both companies. Leslie Picker joins us now with a look at why shareholder activism seems to be picking up lately. This isn't the only place either, is it, Leslie?
12: It is certainly not, Tyler. Activism saw a slight uptick in the first half of the year, but still well off the highs of the pre-pandemic era. 390 companies were targeted, about 7% above the first six months of 2021, according to Insightsha, which tracks activist activity. The second half of the year appears to be ripe with activity as well, as you mentioned, Elliot confirming stakes in Pinterest and PayPal this week alone, and the ecosystem is buzzing with bankers and advisors to companies and activists alike telling me that they're expecting an unprecedented second
6: half. I think we're already setting ourselves up for a good year, but if it continues at this pace, it's likely to be a record year for activism. And I predict that unless there's some major event on the back end of the year, notably something macro or something that you know, disrupts the markets, there should be a pretty significant amount
2: of activity in the back end of the year.
12: Markets are a key driver here, of course, with valuations stabilizing in recent weeks and for many companies at lower levels. That's especially true of kind of that growthy tech area. There's also a rule change coming down the pike in September that may favor activists as well as it pertains to something called the universal proxy. In essence, experts believe this could allow activists to get at least one or two board seats where in prior instances they may have risked getting none. Tyler.
3: Let's transition here. Jamie Dimon talking economy, recession. What do you say?
12: Yeah, he spoke with our Boston affiliate and he uh, shed some light on his thoughts on whether two consecutive quarters of GDP constitute a recession. Take a listen.
4: Right now, the American economy is kind of strong. And you know, a recession of technical terms of recession of shrinking GDP. I'm not sure I even believe those numbers, by the way, because they're so distorted coming out of COVID, supply chains, you know, unemployment is still going up. I don't think I've ever seen a recession where employment was getting stronger, not weaker. Jobs are plentiful, wages are going up. So uh, people have more money, they're spending more money, they have more money than than they had pre-COVID. They're spending 10% more than last year, 35% more than pre-COVID. That doesn't sound good, especially me, currently.
3: Mr. Diamond, Leslie, gets the last word there. Thanks everybody, thanks Leslie. Thanks for watching Power Lunch Closing Bell right now.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.